The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. The elders suggested that I develop and preach a topical series for you. Um, And so I have been working on that and will be bringing a series of messages on the topic of assurance. Many of you probably are familiar with the doctrine of assurance, but it can be difficult to define. So what is assurance? Well, I think it would be helpful for us to make some distinctions. Uh, For instance, it would be helpful to distinguish between assurance and saving faith. Saving faith is the gift from God through which we are saved. Now to be clear, it is not strictly speaking faith that saves us. It is Christ who saves us. Faith is the gift of God that enables us to believe in who Christ is and what He has done. In contrast to this, Assurance is the gift of God by which we recognize that we are saved. It is the confidence we have that we are indeed children of God by the work of Christ. In short, it is the belief that we believe. Another distinction we should make is between assurance and perseverance. The perseverance of the saints is The reality that all who are regenerated in Christ through faith can never fail, I'm sorry, can never fall from this state of right standing with God. It is an indisputable fact that all who have been accepted by God will never totally or finally fall. All who have been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, all who have been taken out of the old family in Adam and placed in the new family in Christ, can in no ways fail to endure to the end and be welcomed by the Lord in glory. In contrast to this, assurance is the consent in our own minds and hearts that we are truly counted in this number. It is the belief in God's promises And that these promises belong to us. Assurance recognizes that God cannot change or lie. For in doing so, uh, that would be contrary to His very nature. So the assurance of faith is a certain assurance. It is the certain assurance that a person is himself in the position or state of God's grace and is truly a child of God. That gives us our definition. But does assurance matter? Assurance is one of the great treasures of the faith that was recovered during the Reformation. Did you know that uh, it was an important enough topic that more than 25 Westminster divines wrote books on the topic of assurance? before the writing of the Westminster uh, Confession. 
Why did so many of these men feel the need to cover this topic at such great depth? And what they understood that many of us may miss today is that many spiritual maladies come as a direct result of lacking assurance. Moving towards spiritual maturity comes hand in hand with being assured that we are in Christ. There are some who believe that assurance is a dangerous thing, saying it can cause a person to become lazy in their Christian walk. The problem with this thinking, of course, is that it contradicts the Bible's own teaching. And it diverts our focus away from Christ and onto our own works. Now, there is a delicate balance because the Bible clearly teaches that good works are an evidence of salvation. But they are not the source of our salvation, so they are not to be the end-all determining factor in our minds. Some want to address the problem of lacking assurance by directing a person to look at their life. However, this is actually counterproductive as it again diverts our gaze away from the author and perfecter of our faith. I love the quote from Martin Luther regarding the topic of assurance. Luther says, When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. The answer of lacking assurance is not to look at one's own self and works, but to look at Christ and His works. I hope to get more into the topic of the loss of assurance in a later sermon, but for today, let me wrap up this introduction to the topic by looking at the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now one thing to keep in mind as we look at this passage 
it seems likely that the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon. It's very pastoral with a uh, loving pastor speaking directly to his congregation. The purpose of it is to bring exhortation and encouragement to the people. In chapter 13, uh, which Tim read earlier in the service this morning, the author describes it as a word of exhortation or a word of parakalesis in the Greek. Now, many of you might recognize the word parakalesis as the same word that Jesus used as a title for the Holy Spirit in John 16. It literally means an advocate or a comforter. In the first five chapters of Hebrews, the author has been bringing this exhortation and encouragement by making the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Covenant. He is arguing that these Hebrew believers should not return to the practices of the Old Covenant. Jesus is greater than any that has come before. This new covenant is greater than any that came before it. The author is urging these Hebrew believers not to abandon the faith by returning to the Old Covenant. Now again, it is helpful to look at this book as a single sermon. I heard Sinclair Ferguson describe the role of the preacher like this. All of us lean one direction or the other. We lean towards gentleness or we lean towards roughness. The preacher must not allow, I'm sorry, the preacher must not always follow his natural inclination. The preacher must bring both. Gospel preaching brings both. The gospel does radical surgery on the heart of a sinner. And then it brings miraculous healing to the same. The Puritans often referred to this rough preaching as the type of preaching that rips up your conscience. Now, I wish that I could roll my R's the way that Sinclair Ferguson does when he says that with his Scottish accent. But you'll just have to live with my Midwestern accent when I tell you the first half of Hebrews chapter 6 does this very thing. It rips up their conscience. In the first part of chapter 6, the author offers one of the strongest warning passages in the book. The point he is making in this warning passage is that no amount of religious activity or spiritual experiences will bring you safely into the family of God. Those who rely on such experiences to verify they are part of the true body of Christ are putting themselves in very real danger. It is only those who have been regenerated by the power of the Spirit who are part of the true church. Assurance is not a gift for those who are unregenerate. And no amount of religious works will change that. Now for the purpose of this sermon on the legitimacy of assurance, I want you to notice three things in verses 9 through 20. First, something unexpected. Then something unchangeable. And finally, something unmovable. First, something unexpected. You get the sense that the preacher of this sermon to the Hebrews knows his audience well. In verse 9, he is reassuring them of his affection for them, 
making sure that they do not misunderstand or misinterpret his point. Having just given such a strong warning, this pastor wants to make sure that these precious children of God understand he does not think they are apostates. He is making a distinction between those who have proven to be false and those who remain. He is certain that these saints are not of those who walk away. They are true children of God. His point was, by contrast, to stir them up to diligence. Of his hearers, he is certain of better things. Things that belong to or accompany salvation. He gives an example of why he thinks this and why he is certain of this in verse 10. The author brings up their work and the love they have shown for Jesus by serving the saints. Our work of love and service are evidence to us of the work being done in us by the Spirit of God. This is not to say that these works are the basis of salvation, but merely a fruit of it. It is God who gives the ability to do good works. To overlook the believer's good works would be for God to overlook his own work. But these believers have worked at serving one another out of their love for Jesus. It would be unjust for God to overlook that since it is his work in them that caused it to spring up in the first place. Now, I doubt that this is surprising to most of you. So what is this unexpected thing that I have told you to look for in the first few verses of this passage? Well, if you look at verse 11, you'll see that the author desires that the saints have the same earnestness in gaining assurance as they did in doing the good works he just commended. You see that in verse 11? They have worked hard at serving the brethren out of love for Christ. He is now calling them to use the same earnestness, the same diligence to have full assurance of hope. To work hard at having assurance that comes from the joyful and confident hope of eternal salvation. To what end is the author calling us to this work? It is so that we won't be sluggish in verse 12. Doesn't that seem backwards? If it said to work hard to love the brethren so that you can gain assurance, we would understand that. Or if it said to be diligent to do this or that in order to verify your faith, that would line up with our expectations. But it doesn't say that. It says, be earnest to have assurance so that you won't be sluggish. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some are afraid of teaching assurance because they think it will make Christians lazy. The author of Hebrews is teaching us the exact opposite of that. Be earnest to have assurance so that you won't be lazy or slothful, as the King James 
says. So that in so doing, we will be imitators of those who inherit the promises. The diligence towards assurance will prepare us for the inheritance we have in Christ. Verse 12 teaches us that it is through faith and patience that the promises are attained. This is why we should seek after assurance, so that we can have faith and patience. It's not through great acts of valor or great deeds accomplished in His name. The promises are inherited through faith and patience. And now here we see a bit of irony. The one the author is pointing out as an example of faith and patience is Abraham. This is the same Abraham who we might uh, describe as someone who distinctly lacked patience. He wanted God's promises to be fulfilled in his own timing, so he took matters into his own hands with Hagar. And yet, by grace, Abraham is counted as the example of inheriting the promises through faith and patience. Notice that our inheritance is not a fast food meal like the drive through at McDonald's. Barely edible, but at least it's cheap. Rather, it is a slow-cooked, exquisitely set, very costly, fine dining experience that only comes through patience and faith in Him who is promised. So who can have assurance? Well, according to verses 9-12, through 12, every believer can have assurance and should strive to have it. William Gouge makes a comment on these verses saying, All they that are of the faith of Abraham, and none but they, have a right to this blessing. So we have seen something unexpected. Now, we look for something unchangeable. We can see plainly by the previous verses that assurance matters. It is important for the believer to seek assurance. But the author wants to reinforce this truth by showing the value that God himself has placed on it. In what could realistically be characterized as another unexpected thing, verses 13 through 18 explain the amazing phenomenon of God swearing an oath to Abraham. This is actually shocking. It is strange that God swore an oath. Think about it. Why do we have oaths? We have oaths because human speech is untrustworthy. We live in a fallen world, so oaths are necessary. Oaths exist to make sure we are telling the truth. When testifying in court, we place our hand on the Bible and swear that what we are about to testify is true. When a person takes an official office, it is often accompanied by being sworn in. They place a hand on the Bible and they swear to uphold the duties of their office. Oftentimes with the words, so help me God. We swear by something greater than ourselves. 
This reminds me of a scene from the movie The Princess Bride. It's one of our family favorites. There is a scene where Inigo is waiting on the man in black to climb the wall so that they can fight a duel. He looks down and offers to help the man in black up, to throw him a rope to help him up. But there is nothing he can say that will convince the man in black to trust him. Finally, Inigo swears on the soul of his dead father, and the man in black accepts his help. We swear by something greater than ourselves. Such as when we place our hands on the Bible to take an oath. The Bible has more authority than we do. But, what is God Almighty going to swear by? The author of Hebrews reminds us that in this story, God swears by the greatest thing possible. He swears by Himself. He does this so that by two unchangeable things, the promise itself and the sworn oath on top of that, by this double assurance, we can be sure of the promises. Do you see the unchangeable things? God cannot lie regarding His promises of blessing. Nor can He lie regarding His covenant oaths. God cannot contradict his nature. Remember, God did not need to swear an oath. All of God's promises are yes and amen. The promise to abundantly bless and abundantly multiply Abraham and his seed is amazing in itself. It's even more amazing that God chose to swear an oath on this point. He accommodates His communication to us in order to make His great love clear. Isn't it astounding? Stunning that God has loved us so much that He would condescend in this way for the sake of our comfort. It's important to see that God chose to swear an oath to convince us of His promise. John Owen is helpful in showing us why this is significant. Owen says, For when God forbids His name to be taken in vain or on a slight occasion and denounces the severest vengeance on all who rashly abuse it, when He commands reverence to be rendered to His majesty, He thus teaches us that he holds his name in the highest esteem and honor. The certainty of salvation is then a necessary thing. For he who forbids to swear without reason has been pleased to swear for the sake of rendering it certain. In other words, the fact that God has forbidden his name be taken lightly and has put such strict regulations around swearing oaths, you better believe it is significant that He has chosen to swear by Himself on this topic. God's promise is enough. It is unchangeable and irrevocable. Yet, 
the Lord chose to add an oath so that there could be two unchangeable and irrevocable things to give us confidence in His Word. God adds an oath as a superlative to make the point abundantly clear. So why does God swear an oath? Well, the author tells us in verse 18, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Isn't that beautiful? He swore this oath so that we who have fled for refuge in Christ might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Without a doubt, our hope is certain and sure. These unchangeable truths, God's promise and God's oath, ensure it. Which leads us to our third point, something unmovable. Look at verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is our hope. This is our anchor. This assurance holds us fast in the place of resting in Christ. And the work that He has done and continues to do as our great high priest. Now notice, this anchor, this hope, it's, it's tethered inside of the inner place behind the curtain. This is describing the holy of holies. <clears throat> this, is, this is heaven in the presence of the Almighty, the triune God, and our great high priest, Jesus Himself is there. And notice, He is there as a forerunner. All who are resting in Christ will follow Him there. This hope is secured by Jesus, not by us. It is God alone who secures it. It is done in spite of our actions, not because of them. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin and misery, both of which Christ took on our behalf. This hope is enduring because it rests on Jesus and not on us. This hope will endure till Jesus returns and then our faith will become sight. Our confession states that the assurance of grace and salvation is an infallible assurance of faith. It is not to say that our knowledge of assurance is infallible or without error. Nor is it to say that we cannot err in our own judgment. But rather, to say that our assurance is unable to err in Jesus Christ. He is our surety. He is the guarantee of our salvation. 
We should dive into Christ knowing that He alone is the one who accomplished it. For a bonus point, uh, I noticed another you as I was wrapping up my sermon prep. But I'd already sent Doug the outline. So you get a bonus point for free tonight. Uh, That is an unusual name. So if you're still with me, uh, notice the name at the end of verse 20, Melchizedek. In the following chapter, the author goes into depth regarding the comparison between Jesus and this Melchizedek. Suffice it for this afternoon to recognize that this priest king is known as someone who came out of nowhere and that he returned back to nowhere as soon as he had come. Abraham's story gives us no details about his lineage and very little details about him at all except that Abraham the great patriarch of the faith, reckoned this man superior to himself. Now this reminds me very much of the way that this pastor speaks to the Hebrews in this book about Jesus. Especially in the very end of the book where he describes Jesus as being the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same yesterday. The days when he walked on this earth in his humiliation. And he is the same today. Where he stands in the presence of God, interceding for us relentlessly. And he will be the same forever. For all eternity, he will be our glorious Savior. And someday, in his perfect timing, our faith will become sight. And everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for forgiveness and righteousness will be with our beloved forever. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.